0: Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Today, we're in week five of a message series called The Parables of Jesus, and today we're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There's so much in here about salvation, about heaven, about hell, about what it means to truly trust in God. I hope this will be an inspiration to you and help you to go deeper in your faith. Let's turn it over to the text and the message.
1: So the reading comes from Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophet. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. There was a rich man. All right. Can we
0: put that last video back up, Henry? That was amazing. Actually, I don't know if you can. You know what, we'll include it on our online uh, stream later when we add it in there. There was an amazing blooper uh, that was absolutely priceless, and I was going to give you a comment about how you stay in youth ministry. Uh, Chris, it was awesome. He had this little purple doll, and he started talking in this high voice. It was really awesome. So anyway, you missed it. But uh, good to see everybody here today. It's nice to see some faces in the audience. Um, nice to see those of you who are streaming online. So glad you're with us. I want to share a few announcements before we dive into this text, Okay. And the announcement that I wanted to share with you is, uh, is twofold. Number one, some of you may be wondering about COVID, and of course there's been a, a recent outbreak at Fleming and a little bit at Trent, and so our area tomorrow I think is going to red. I can't figure out the color zones, I don't know if you guys can, it makes no sense, the colors. But anyway, uh, it's going to red, so we're going to keep our eye on that and keep you posted as far as whether we continue to gather or not. My assumption is, as long as things don't get worse, we'll continue to meet live and continue to, to stream for those who are not able to be here, so... I wanted to let you know about that, so we'll keep you posted. Uh, second thing, uh, last Sunday, you heard all kinds of information, if you were with us, about um, a building that we were investigating. And I told you last Sunday we had a, kind of an open town hall Zoom meeting afterwards and kind of answered a bunch of great questions that some of you guys asked. It was super, super helpful. We did not record that. We intended to, and it got missed, so I apologize. Uh, but there were some great questions, and overall it was just extremely positive. And I wanted to let you guys know... That this past Monday, after that, uh, last Sunday, our board met and decided to move forward with the uh, purchase of the facility. So we're waiving the conditions. The elders affirmed that. So, yeah. And, again, um, so much of the story of how we came onto that building and discovered it, there's, there's all these little... Uh, I don't want to not call them miracles, because God just sort of lined some things up, which has been amazing. But even since last Sunday, we've had numerous people contact us, wanting to invest in it, help us financially, all kinds of different things. So we see the hand of God at work. We know there's a lot of work yet ahead to get the facility ready and all that stuff, but we're excited to, to have a future home. So with that, we're going to transition over to um, week five. We're in week five of a message series called The Parables of Jesus, and today... We're actually talking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You just, you just heard it read, the rich man and Lazarus. Now, this is an interesting parable because this is a parable that often throughout the centuries has been sort of interpreted to mean a lot of things. Some people read this parable in, his, in history and have thought, okay, what it means is rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Like People actually taught that. That's not true. That's not what this is about. People have taught that this actually is Jesus trying to discuss and tell us all about how hell works and, and paradise and all the levels of hell, and you sort of get all these sort of theologies that come out of this parable. But I think what I want you to see today is that this parable is actually... Uh, Jesus has a very, very intentional point that he's trying to make. And so, uh, because of that, today we are going to be talking about the subject of hell. Okay? There's the word... Uh, For those of you who don't even like to say the word H-E, double hockey sticks, as someone once uh, told me. Okay, so we've got this topic that I think is not actually what the parable is about, but the parable certainly references the afterlife, eternal punishment, and so we need to talk about it a little bit, and I want to help to clarify a few things for you. So this week, um, actually, because I knew I was going to be talking about hell, I actually took my family there for dinner, I actually got a picture in case you don't believe me, here it is. Uh, first time eating out at a restaurant in over a year. And so we took a picture in front, and I realized my head was in front of the O. And so <laughs> I had to show you the guys' this picture. Um, hell is not funny, but this picture is kind of funny. And that might be the last laugh today because we're talking about some serious stuff. <laughs> so um, what we want to do as we approach this parable is we want to ask a series of questions. And as I said earlier, because Jesus' parables are stories that have eternal truths, that have you know, significant truths for us, they also have to be interpreted. And, and as you may know, many people can take these stories that Jesus told and they can take all the little pieces and they can substitute all kinds of definitions and meanings to the things that Jesus never intended, and we can go all over the place, theologically, with the words of Jesus. And so we've been asking three questions to help us interpret Jesus' parable in the best way possible. The first question we've been asking each week of the series is this. What is... Jesus' mission. What did Jesus say about what he came to do? Because if we know what he came to do and what he came to teach and what he was trying to do, then what he taught in these parables will begin to come to light and other stuff will sort of fall by the wayside. So we're asking what's the big picture? And so far we've been learning a number of things. Number one, Jesus came to announce a new kingdom. He came to announce a kingdom that would outlast the Greek and Roman empires, that would outlast Canada, United States, European Union, all of the kingdoms in this world. He came to begin a kingdom... That would spread throughout the entire world and that would last forever. A people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And in the first parable we looked at in this series, we looked at the parable of the sower. And what we learned about the parable of the sower is that uh, the kingdom would come like seed. So not with swords and spears and tanks, but that a seed would be planted in a heart and it would begin to grow and transform each individual from the inside out. That's cool. That's like no other kingdom there that exists on the world. So we learned how the kingdom would come. In the second week, we looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the weeds. And we learned in that parable that um, there would be opposition to what God wants to do in your life and in your heart. And we need to know that. In the the third week, we learned about who Jesus invites into that kingdom. Jesus invites lost people. And we learned that there are all kinds of lost people. Ignorant people who don't know. People who have been abused and misused. People who are defiant, like, God, I'm doing it my way. And those who are self-righteous, look at me. I'm amazing. God loves me. Of course he'd want me in heaven. Like all of those kinds of people, he came. And he came to seek and save them. He came to invite them to repent and to turn to him and come home. Last week we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager. Wasn't that an interesting one? Last week we looked at the the, uh, dishonest manager and we learned that everything that we have in our lives, our money, our time, our stuff, our resources, our kids if you have kids, our marriage if you're married, our work opportunities, all of that is a gift from God and it's temporary. We don't take it with us. And because it's temporary, it it, it will one day be gone. And what Jesus was teaching through that parable is that we have an opportunity right now to use temporary stuff to make a difference for eternity. And so as we kind of enter into our text today, I want us to consider the second question, which is this. What is the context? And what you need to know about this parable that we're diving into is that this parable follows right after last week's parable of the dishonest manager. Jesus is still talking about money. Jesus is still talking to the same people, religious leaders, the Pharisees. Okay? These were people that were religious. They kept the law of God, or at least they thought so. They were well-respected. Many of them were wealthy. They studied the Bible. They went to church. But there was something twisted inside them, and Jesus is speaking to them. And these two parables are connected. So I want you to see something. We have the parable of the dishonest manager, and then we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and, and they're both in the same chapter, and right between we have five verses where Luke, the author of this gospel, tells us what the context is. So we don't want to read this parable today and be like, oh, it's teaching about the levels of hell, when that wasn't the intention. I want you to see what the context is. It says this in verse 14, so this is right between last week's and this week's parable. You, you with me? Give me a little uh-huh. All right, here we go. Um, here's the context. The Pharisees, okay, who were lovers of money, heard these things and began to ridicule him. They loved money, you go back, they loved their money more than they loved people. Everybody say, that won't work. Yeah, you could do better than that. They loved money more than people. Okay. They also trusted in their money more than they trusted in God. That won't work. And Jesus wanted them to know that, that they were trusting in the wrong thing. And and so everything Jesus is going to say in this next parable, he's talking to this group of people and he wants them to know why when they die, they'll be rejected. They love money more than people. They, they, They trusted money more than God and that won't work. Here's the second thing. Go to the next verse. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Jesus says, you care more about what people think and what people see than what God thinks and what God sees. Everybody say? That won't work. Jesus is like, you're, you're focused on all the wrong things. You care about how you look. You care about what people think of you. And, and you're missing the boat. Because it, what matters is what God sees and what God thinks about you. So, two for two. They're not doing so well. Here's the, the third thing before I show you the text. This, third, this verse that I'm going to show you right now seems totally out of context. Let me share with you the context. The religious leaders of Jesus' day took the Bible, they took the Old Testament law and prophets, and they twisted it for their own advantage. And I'm telling you, Jesus was very merciful and kind to people who were lost in sin, who had their lives messed up, who didn't know better. But when people knew what the Bible said and twisted it for their own selfish advantage, wow, he came down hard on them. So that's a warning for us. That we never use the Bible to gain personal advantage. That we never use God's word to chop down fellow Christians or anyone. That's very, very... You're, you're right on the border of hell. I'm just telling you, okay? It's a big deal. And so here's, here's this passage that seems totally out of context with all this talk about money. Throw it up here for me. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Why is he talking about marriage all of a sudden? And he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Well, in order to understand why Jesus is saying this to these people, we have to look at the other places where he talks about divorce and remarriage. In each case, what Jesus is doing, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had a passage. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. You can go and read it this week. And the passage says this, that if a man is married to a woman and she displeases him because of an indiscretion, that's how the wording is. So the idea is, is that you're married to a woman and, you're, and your wife is maybe cheating on you or doing something horrendous. Then Moses gave people permission to write your wife a certificate of divorce because of this horrendous thing she's doing. But the way the religious leaders were reading the text and twisting it is they basically went, if my wife displeases me, I can get a new one. Now, this is, historically, this is what happened. They would literally be like, honey, when I married you, you were 20 pounds lighter, you know, and the curves were a little nicer, and this just won't do. And they would give a certificate of divorce, go find a younger wife. And they were legally allowed to do it. They had a verse. Honey, those wrinkles have to go, and so do you. We could keep going all day long, right? Like, this is horrific. And they would literally divorce their wives, remarry new wives, and they could do it according to the law. And Jesus is like, you have missed the boat on the intention of God. the, the, The sacred bond of marriage before God. Jesus says, what God has put together, let no one separate. This is important, significant stuff. Don't take it flippantly. Don't use my words to get and abuse women. It's horrible. Anyway, So Jesus has pulled out these three things. And now when we read this parable, which he's speaking to this same group of people, you're going to see these same themes resurfacing in the story. You guys all with me? Okay? All right. Here we go. So here's what we're going to do. Before we look at the text, I want to just say a few words. You can take that, that scripture down. I want to say a few words about the topic of hell. Because I think what's happened is throughout church history, There have been various books written, and different doctrines have come into the church, and people have all these ideas about hell. In fact, if I were to ask you to to describe for me what hell is, and how one gets there, and all this kind of stuff, we would get a whole mixed bag of responses in this room. I know it. And what I want to do today is just give you a very broad overview of what the Scriptures teach. We can't dive into it all. In, In this case, Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, and He wants them to know this. He wants them to know that when their life is over... Their access will be denied. And it will come as a shock to them. And Jesus doesn't want it to come as a shock to them. Have you ever had your access denied? I have. Uh, About a month ago, I was trying to move money from one of my accounts to another account. And I logged into the online thing, you know. And I start trying to make the transaction. And it's like third level of security. It asks me for a PIN code to approve the transaction. And I'm thinking, I don't know what the PIN code is. (laughs) And so I start typing all the four and five digit PIN codes that I could think of. None of them worked. It just kept going, access denied, access denied. And I'm getting furious because I'm like, it's my money and I want to move it over there and I can't. And finally, it says, click here for help. I clicked here for help. It didn't help. Next thing you know, you've all been there, right? Some of you experienced this, so frustrating. Next thing you know, it's like, sorry, your account's been frozen. You have to call this help number. And so I call the help number. I'm on hold for two hours. I finally, give up. I'm like, I'm try this tomorrow. So the next day, I'm on hold for over two and a half hours, and I'm getting furious. There was weeping. There was gnashing of teeth. <laughs> you know, gnashing of teeth is anger, right? Like when when they killed, um, what was his name in the in the New Testament? Um, not Philip. Stephen. When they stoned Stephen, he was talking about Jesus, and they gnashed their teeth. They were so angry at what he was saying. I, I was sitting on the phone, and I was like thinking to myself, some guy or gal. Right? And, and, and at a help desk somewhere in the world is about to connect to me and get a strip torn off them. I was so mad. I'm like, I've wasted five hours of my life trying to get access to something that's mine. Furious. And then I remembered my name's on the account. They can Google me and they'll see I'm a pastor. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I restrained myself and I was nice and they did help me, right? Everything, everything worked out. But, but Jesus wants these religious leaders to know that when they die, and they stand before a holy God, that they, God's going to be like, access denied. And they're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa! I deserve to be here. And he'll be like, no, you don't. And they'll say, oh, but look at all the things we did. Look at the things we believed. Abraham was our father. They're going to claim all these things and say, I belong here. And Jesus will be like, access denied. And that's what this parable is all about. So let's talk about a few things about hell. Um, from the Old Testament to the New, there's these options that are placed before us. Joshua said to the people, set before you today, Life and death, blessing and cursing, choose. So there's this option of life and death. In the New Testament, Jesus says it this way, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, right? that's death, but have eternal life. You have these two options set in front of us. Now I know some people would say, Well, hey, uh, this this is actually a question that a lot of people have asked me and a lot of people wrestle with, including myself at times. How could a loving God... Cast people into a lake of fire. How could He? If God loves people, how could He punish people eternally? If He loves people, how could He cast them away? And I think when we ask this question, we're missing part of the point. And I guess the point that I'm trying to say is that, yes, God says access denied, but for most of us, what the Scriptures teach is that we willingly walk away and choose death. And so it's both me choosing and Him affirming that choice and sending. It's both. And so we take some responsibility Also, people say, well, I don't like this justice part. Like, I like how Jesus talked about love and forgiveness. I like that part, but not the judgment and and the fire stuff, right? Like, can we just set that aside and just love everybody? But what you have to understand is that hell, by definition, is a place of final justice. It's a place where all the rights are made wrong, where the scales are balanced and, and again, it's, it's easy for us in our wonderful North American culture to be like, I don't believe in, in judgment and punishment. But if you live in some other countries where your family is murdered and there's wars and, and all kinds of... Then you want a God that's going to make things right. Otherwise, you've got to make it right yourself. And you get people running around taking a life... See, the reason why I can forgive somebody who's wronged me is not because they deserve it, but because I've been forgiven and I trust that God will sort out the rest. And, and if there is no final judgment then what do we have? People in our culture today are all about justice. Let's get justice for the oppressed. Let's get justice for the marginalized. And that's right. We should should have equality. We should have opportunity for everyone. We should have justice. But in order to have justice, we have to have a God who will right every wrong. And so, you know, Jesus uh, was the one who told us about a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus is the one that told us about forgiveness. But he's also the one that spoke more about hell about a place of judgment where each and every person will stand before God. You guys with me? Got quiet in the room. You know, um, there's actually a lot of theories about hell. I can't get into them all. I did a deep dive on hell this week. I literally studied hell all week. It was kind of depressing, I'll be honest with you. Uh, and, And there's just all kinds of different ways that people think about it and talk about it. At our church, we like to talk about something called the closed hand and the open hand. And in the open hand, we're going to have conversations about you know, what hell looks like, and uh, we're going to have conversations about you know, how long does somebody in hell... Is People think of hell as a place where there's just eternal torture, like devil with a pitchfork. I don't even know where the pitchfork came from. But, and I don't know how he got a tail, but he's got a tail and a pitchfork, and he's kind of tormenting and poking everyone. I think that's from Dante's Inferno. Like, it's, it's not in the Bible, okay? But we have these ideas about it. And so there's, some of that stuff's going to be in the open hand, but in the closed hand, I'll tell you what's in the closed hand. One day, like I said last week, every single one of us will stand before a holy God and give account for ourselves. And there's only one thing that's going to open the door of access to heaven, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That's in the closed hand. The open hand, you know, there's actually, there's three prevailing, okay, I'll give you a little taste. There are three prevailing views on hell. And when I say hell, I'm talking about eternal judgment. Okay, the three prevailing views. The first one is eternal torment. Okay, that's the pitchfork. And burning forever, no no end in sight. The second would be basically this idea that people will pay a punishment in hell, and eventually once their punishment is paid, they have an opportunity to repent, and eventually all of God's creation are in heaven with him, all forgiven. Some people like that. That's a universalism kind of idea. Not very many verses for that one. But that's another view that you'll, you'll read books about right now, people talking about. The third is what we call like an annihilistic view, where... At the end of the age, God judges, and all those who have rejected him and done evil, they're cast into a lake of fire where they are eternally destroyed. They don't exist anymore. They're not suffering for eternity. They're gone. Those are three views, and people take Bible verses to prove them all. We're going to keep that in the open hand. What's in the closed hand? We're all going to stand before God. We're going to be judged. And what we do in this life really, really, really matters. You guys with me? All right, let's jump into our text. I've said enough. Here we go. Uh, we'll go back to verse 19, and we're going to talk about um, the rich man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. The only thing we're told about this character is that he's wealthy, that he has fine, fine clothes, and that he had lots to eat. Okay? It doesn't say he's evil. It doesn't say he ripped off his employees and got wealthy with some you know, pyramid scheme. None of that. The assumption is this is a good Jew. This could be one of the Pharisees Jesus is talking to. I wonder, this is just my crazy mind, I wonder whether anyone in the crowd is wearing a nice purple robe. (laughs) Because that would have been so funny. There was a guy who had a purple robe. I was like, is he talking about me? Uh, That would have been awesome. I don't know. So there's this rich man clothed in purple. And then we see the next character. Go to the next verse. And at his gate was laid a poor man. I wanted you to see... That Jesus makes a point to say that this poor man was put there purposely. And I really do believe that God will put opportunities in front of us to love others, to help, to do what we can do with the resources we have. He, he has a way of setting things up in such a way that we have a great opportunity to do. It's not like this guy was like, I don't know what I could do. It's like it was right in front of him. This man was put there. And here's what it says about him. He laid a poor man named, everybody say, Lazarus. Now, Throughout each week of the series, we've been asking three questions. The third question that we've been asking is this question of, is there a twist? Is there a twist? Let me, let me show you something. In this parable, Jesus gives one of the characters a name. And you go, okay, his name is Lazarus. You don't think anything of it. Out of all the parables Jesus told, this is the only time he gives one of the characters a name. Who thinks that's important? <laughs> I do. Like 40-some parables... And it's like a landowner, a business manager, a woman, a shepherd, a fisherman, a whatever. And all of a sudden, he gives one of the characters a name. I think we ought to pay attention to that. Let me, let me share with you what the name means. The name Lazarus, or Eleazar, means God has helped. And so we're going to see a contrast between two characters. One of them, who's trusting in a God who helps, that's his name, is what it means. And what's interesting about this is you would look at Lazarus and you'd think, God hasn't helped him. He's poor. He's living on the street. He's got boils all over his skin. He's got nothing. How can you call him someone who God has helped? And then the other character we have is a rich man who has fine clothes and all the food he can eat. And you get these two contrasts. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He wants us to know what determines whether a person goes to heaven or hell. You want to know? It's right here in the name. What determines whether they go? And the answer is this. Trust In the God who saves. No one's going to heaven because they did enough good things, gave enough money away, followed enough rules. The only reason why any of us receive eternal grace and spend eternity with God is because we trust Him to save us. That's it. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And we have a poor man who has nothing but trust in a God who saves. His only hope is in God. He has nothing else to hope in. The rich man, on the other hand, has all this stuff And his trust has turned away from God and turned towards his money. You say, how do you know this? Well, we're going to keep reading and we're going to see it played out in the story. I also want you to know that believing in God is not the same thing as trusting in God. You know that, right? Like there are fallen angels in hell. And they believe in God. They don't trust him. And there are many people who say, I believe God exists. But they don't trust God. And you know that because the way they talk and the way they live. And maybe that's some of you and me. Trusting in God is what matters. So let's continue in the story. Let's go, let's go forward. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. All this man wanted was a little bit of the scrap food, you know, that Mr. Piggly Wiggly was, you know, falling off his plate all over the floor. He just wanted just what fell from the rich man's table, but this, of course... Did not happen. Next verse, No next slide. What we discover here about Jesus' story is that there are <laughs> there's more than one kind of sin. You know, we often think about sin as what we call sins of commission. They're things we commit, right? So if you commit murder, that's who agrees? That's wrong. <laughs> that's yeah. Most of the hands went up. Okay. We all understand, like hurting people, you know, gossip, slander, lying, stealing. These are sins of things we do. That are bad and we get punished for it. We get it. But they're also sins of omission. Where God literally puts a poor man right in front of the rich man's house. He's starving and he just looks at him and does nothing. And Jesus is like, you're going to be held accountable for that too. And what that means is that we can't just have a rule and a checklist that we follow to go, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. We have to have our eyes open to God and our ears open to hear what he's saying. And watching for needs around us. You guys track what I'm saying? Jesus is, is drawing some really, really cool stuff. So here he continues. He says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the dogs had more compassion on this poor man. Dogs are great that way, right? The dogs had more compassion on the poor man than the rich man did. He continues. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. All right, so now he's in the afterlife, whatever that means. And in the afterlife, this poor man finds himself right next to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation and the father of faith. Now, in Jewish culture, whoever was closest, you know, to the, to the, to the most significant person, it was kind of like an order of importance, right? Like, the most, the king would be there and his most important would be on his right and left and the table. The further you got away from the main guy, the lower you were in the totem pole. And here, Lazarus, this poor guy, is right, he's literally like leaning on Abraham, like, hey, check it out. He's right there at Abraham's side. Contrast this to the rich man. Here's what it says. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. Now, again, in the New Testament, there's actually three words for hell that are translated into the English hell. And uh, one of them is Tartarus, which is like a deep abyss where angels are chained up waiting for the final judgment. You and I don't go there. It's used about the angels. The second word is Hades, which means... The place of the dead or the afterlife. And then the third word is Gehenna that Jesus uses which talks about a pit, of fire, a place of burning. And what we see at the end of the book of Revelation is that death and Hades and Tartarus, all these places all get rolled up and thrown into the final judgment, hell. So you can see why this gets a little confusing. But Jesus specifically uses this word. He's just saying, hey, when this guy dies, we have two different things happening. Let's talk about what's happening. You guys tracking with me, Okay. So he's in torment. It's not good for him. Next verse, it says this. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Can you imagine the surprise? This is a guy who went to synagogue every week, we assume. Gave to others, did certain things, thought he was doing fine, thought he would be welcomed into heaven and he dies, and he's like in torment and he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. Now what's interesting about this is in the Jewish context, what would happen is if somebody was wealthy and healthy and they had lots, you would assume it's because God blessed them and they made good choices. That was the assumption, it was karma almost, sowing and reaping. And if somebody was poor, sick, lame, it's because they had done something really terrible or their parents had done something, so they deserved what they were getting. And Jesus is wiping this right off the table, this notion that someone's external factors, where they find themselves, that that is somehow determined solely by them. No, no, no. And here's what happens next. Check this out. He calls out, don't miss this, Father Abraham. The rich man doesn't call out to a God who helps and saves. No. He calls out to Abraham. This is important because Jesus and John the Baptist specifically used to call out these religious leaders and say, you say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. Because we're descendants of Abraham, we're God's chosen people. Of course God will save us. Of course God loves us. Of course we'll go to heaven. And Jesus is like, no. John said, not not even close. He said, God can make more children of Abraham out of stones. That means nothing. Friends, what matters is not who you're related to. Not that your father and your father's father and your father's father were pastors. That your parents go to church. That you grew up in church. That your grandmother was a prayer warrior. None of that stuff matters. It's not based on that. He, looked, he says, Father Abraham. These religious leaders were trusting in their Jewish lineage, not in God. You see that? Notice what happens next. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Oh, look it. This guy still thinks he's better than Lazarus. He is so self-deceived, he's justified that he's important and Lazarus is nothing, that he's actually telling Abraham to send Lazarus to serve him, even though he did nothing to lift a finger to help Lazarus. The other interesting thing about this to me is that the guy who's, who's in, in, in this place of torment... He's not asking to get out. He's asking for other people to get sent in. I just think that's funny. All right. Continue. He says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. He's like, I want him to do something to relieve my torment. But of course, he was unwilling to do anything in his life to relieve the torment that Lazarus was experiencing. But Abraham responded. Abraham said this. Child. Remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Remember what I said about hell? People think that hell is this arbitrary place that God's just like, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, and he just casts people away and welcomes some people in. That's not what Jesus taught, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches that there's some stuff we do that determines where we go. That there's an, in essence, uh, a sowing and reaping that happens. For example, Jesus said this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we can receive God's love and forgiveness while we're here on this earth. Do you agree? And we can grow in love towards others and do good things. And we can actually, in some sense, bring heaven to earth. Do you agree? In the same way, we can bring hell to earth through our sin, through our arrogance, through hurting others. And some of you have experienced hell on earth because of choices people made. And both of them spiral into directions. I love what... Um, I love what um, Tim Keller says. I think I've got a little slide from Tim Keller. If you could throw that one up for me, there's a little slide here from Tim Keller. A um, little quote. Just wait for it. here. He says this: Hell is a place of disintegration and justice, where we get what we want and what we deserve. It's both. It's our choice. John, one of the Jesus apostles, said, "Men love darkness rather than light." So, God is light. And we love darkness, so we're moving away from him. So we're choosing hell. And it's a place of disintegration because the further we get from the source of life, the more our life and the lives of those around us start to pull apart. It's both. It's both things together. He says this. um, He goes on to say this. And between us, throw the next passage up for me, please. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send him. No, we went too far. Go back a few. There we go. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This is really important because I think Jesus is making a very important statement here. That once this life is over, the opportunity to choose is gone. Do you see that? There's a chasm. There isn't this opportunity afterwards. What this should do for each and every one of us is should cause us to take our lives, and the opportunity that is in front of us more seriously. Would you agree? That today, you and I have an opportunity to trust in a God who saves. And that's that's the big ticket issue right there, that we trust in a God who saves. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like all kinds of things with our time and our money and our family and how we treat people. But it's trust in a God who saves that's going to make all the difference in the world. He continues in the next verse. He says, Then I beg you, Father, since there's no hope for me, send Lazarus. He's still trying to tell. He still wants Lazarus to help him. This is crazy. Imagine. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He says, If he can't help me, then let him be resurrected from the dead. Let him go back and warn my brothers that there is this terrible place and that it can be avoided. But Abraham said to him, check this out. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham says, listen. They have the same message as everyone else. They have the same scriptures. They have the same Moses and the same prophets. Jesus constantly accused the religious leaders of twisting Moses and the prophets for their own purposes. So we see Jesus deconstructing these things that the religious leaders were trusting in. Let them hear them. And he said to Abraham... No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It's like if, if Lazarus comes back from the dead and tells them, they'll believe for sure. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were constantly asking Jesus for a sign. Do a sign so we can believe that you are who you say you are. So what does Jesus do? He heals the sick. He heals the blind, the lame. He stretches out a man's hand. Oh, but it's on a Saturday. It's on the Sabbath. So he's a bad guy. Right? He, does, he feeds the 5,000. He casts the devil out of somebody who's in torment. You know what they say? You're doing it by the power of the devil. And Jesus knew that even after his resurrection, these same people would want to destroy him, would destroy his church, and stop the message of Christ. He said to them this, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Who do you think Jesus is talking about right now? (laughs) Himself. He's like, even if I come back from the dead, you're going to try to cover it up? You're going to try to kill all the Christians who are witnesses to me. Why? Because of this. The problem isn't the message. The problem is the audience. The problem isn't the message. It's the audience. Here's the message. Christ has come to save all who trust. Eternal life is available to all who trust in the God who saves. That's the message. And we get to choose to either accept it and believe in Him and trust Him for our salvation Well, we don't. There is coming a day. The one thing I'm certain about is that there is coming a day of judgment where we all stand before God. And what we do in this life and the opportunity we have before us really does matter. Do you hear me? The Bible talks about a book of life and names have to be written in it. When we stand before God, if our name's in the book of life, then we get access. If it's not, it's access denied. Some of you maybe wanted to pray for uh, Tony. I don't know if Tony's watching today. Uh, Tony Jones, a missionary from Haiti, who's part of our church And as many of you know, Tony's wife, he came to Canada with his two boys, but his wife was not admitted access to Canada because she's Haitian. And so they're trying to get the paperwork through because guess what? Without the paperwork, access denied. So we've been praying for that to go through so that she could come and be with her family. So please be praying for them. But you know, ultimately, whether our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, whether we have access to eternity with God, it really comes down to our trust in Him. It's so simple. It's so simple. And yet we miss it. It's so simple. So Jesus says eternal life is available to all those who trust in the God who saves. What I want to do today is I want to close in prayer. And then um, in just a few moments, um, Todd's going to lead us in communion via the video screen. But communion is an opportunity for us to remember. Again, I know some people listening to this may say, I really still have a problem with this idea of hell and judgment. And yet what you have to understand is the love of God is so great that He took our place. (laughs) Like, do you get that? That God couldn't be just if He didn't punish sin, but what He did is He decided to step into our place to take the punishment for our sin. To experience separation from the Father on our behalf. And that's why when we take communion, it's so important. We take the little juice and we take the little cracker and we hold it up and, and we eat them. But what we're saying is, I trust that what Jesus did for me is enough. This is my hope. I'm not going there. I'm going to be with God. And the reason why is because of something that was done for me and I trust in it. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? And so I hope if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, that today would be the day. I tell you, time is ticking and we have an opportunity in this life to do things that impact eternity in one way or the other. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for every person who is here today. We thank you for your generous love. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that, that Lord, even though there is a final judgment coming, that our hope in escaping punishment is actually in the grace and love of God. And, Lord, today I pray that each of us, no matter where we're at with our faith journey, would take a step towards trusting in you and saying, you are my hope, you are my salvation, you are the reason why. I will be granted grace, and mercy, and forgiveness. And Lord, as we leave this place and, and head into our week, that that grace and forgiveness you have shown us would be lived out as we care for and love those around us. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. We're so glad that uh, you were able to tune in. Uh, we'd love to have you subscribe. We'd love to have you connect with us. And you can do so by going to our website or to our YouTube page, Pathway Life church.com or pathway life on youtube we'd love to connect with you and figure out how to help you take your next steps so until next time have a great week